Hello, this is Evans Baratis, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. My guest on this occasion is soprano Janai Brugger, who in the summer of 2019 made a double debut at Cincinnati Opera, starting by singing Susanna in The Marriage of Figaro and finishing with Clara in a production of Porgy and Bess. Janai and I will be talking about what it's like to be a working mom and the first time she got goosebumps at the age of six listening to Kathy Battle. Do you have a very early recollection of hearing operatic singing and your reaction to it? I do. So my mother is an opera fanatic, and my dad was the Motown beast. So I grew up with both of the best of both worlds. So but, um, <laughs> one and three and two and exactly. four. <laughs> and exactly. Lots of tam- and lots of tambourine. <laughs> and lots of tambourine. But um, my earliest memory would be at six years old, my mother took me to the Lyric Opera of Chicago, and wow. Kathleen Battle was doing a recital there. And I remember we were all the way up at the very back of the house. I couldn't see anything, but I do remember vividly Ms. Battle walking in in this yellow flowy gown. And I'm such a girly girl still. And I was so mesmerized just by her dress. Um, And then when she sang, I remember feeling for the first time goosebumps. And I didn't know what was happening. So I remember tugging on my mom's dress and like, you know, I have bumps on me. And she's like, oh, that's a good thing. It means you're experiencing... uh, you know, something special with Ms. Battle's voice. And I said, Mom, how do I get to wear gowns like Ms. Battle? She's like, well, you got to sing like Ms. Battle. <laughs> so that piqued my interest. I cannot sing like Ms. Battle, but it definitely um, started my interest in opera. I never thought I'd be singing it, but I was definitely introduced to it at a very early age. So you have this very early uh, visceral connection to yeah. the art well, to the whole experience, because as you say, it's as much the gown and the formality right. and the beauty and the attention of 3,000 plus people yes. on one person. Yes. Does opera become part of your daily life even as a kid? Where does it begin to take hold? You know, I didn't think much of it. It always played in the car or at home. My mom played blasted the three tenors or anything by Pavarotti or Domingo um, and Kiri Takano, I remember. But I think it was in high schools when it started to click because I was really into musical theater and I thought that's what I would be doing um, because I was in drama school and I was always in the musicals. So I started taking voice lessons as a freshman in high school and my teacher insisted that I learn how to sing with the, the classic technique. Um, as an opera singer, and I didn't understand why, but she just wanted me to have that technique. Um, So I followed her guidance because I didn't know any better. And then I did Nat's competition and entered both divisions of musical theater and opera, and I always advanced in the opera category. The fates were telling you something. It was. It kind of, yeah, it was like uh, my path was just led. And by the time I graduated high school and had to pick a college, I chose voice performance, and opera was my focus. So was this young teenager in high school, did you have to learn some of the songs from that favorite book that we all, the, the, what is it, the 16 te- yes. Italian songs you love to hate? Oh, yes. Caro mio ben and yep. all. Yeah, El Piacere, a lot of Mozart, <laughs> but I loved it, but yeah. Talk about that for a moment, would you please, of, of what's the, you know, we make fun of that in the singing world of these Italian songs that every kid has to learn, but... <laughs> 
clearly for generations they have been a good primer. Mm-hmm. It's like the John W. Thompson for right. the piano, for the voice. What are some of the benefits of those songs? Well, I certainly didn't know Italian at all. Um, so it, it, I had started taking Spanish in, in junior high, so I was familiar with attempting to learn a language at least. So it was a neat discipline to, uh, you know, learn another language. Also, with art song, I didn't sing any arias until my junior year of college in undergrad. I learned a lot of my technique through art song because my teacher was adamant that I learn through art song instead of operatic arias at the beginning. And I am really grateful for that. You, so the first opera singer you see is, a, is an African-American icon singer who is actually, since we are in Cincinnati, from Portsmouth, Ohio, right. a very leisurely drive east of town, mm-hmm. as it were. Did you have did you have icons in general and African-American singers in particular as you were beginning to learn your craft to say, I want to be like her? Um, Miss Battle is definitely the first one that I saw, at least on stage, um, uh, African-American. But I, I did listen to a lot of Pavarotti and Domingo and Kiri Takanawa, but I didn't know um, of any real African-American opera singers until I started getting more serious. And then I looked at Marian Anderson, uh, Leontine Price, of course, Ms. Jessie Norman. And then I had the the great pleasure of having Shirley Verrett as my voice teacher by the time I got to grad school. What was it like being in her studio? Oh. A legendary singer, but also as I only worked with her once. She was part of a gala at the Boston Symphony Orchestra celebrating 50 years of the Tanglewood Music Center. Mm-hmm. And she was an early graduate of the TMC. And I remember she came back for that concert. And get a load of this. She was trying to decide up until the very last minute whether we'd sing, she would sing the mezzo, veil song from Don Carlo or Ritorna Vincitor. <laughs> Yeah, a little different. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, an incredibly versatile artist yes. for whom labels God. meant absolutely nothing absolutely for nothing. most of her career. Exactly. What was she like as a teacher? Oh, gosh. And we're sad. She has passed on. But she has. She was a um, great, great teacher. I had her, uh, you know, for the two years that I was a grad student before she got ill. So um, it was a really special um, time that I'll never forget. But she, she's, she is a very maternal she was very much like a mother to all of her students. She was a tough cookie. She um, we could not come to any <laughs> lesson or group class in pants or, or anything that wasn't professional looking. She wanted us to already be as if we were walking on stage. Um, we had to practice walking in and out of her door. Um, wow. How to announce our names uh, for auditions. You know, she was a tough, tough cookie, but we, we all benefited so much from her. Um, she fought fiercely for all of her students and any other vocal students um, if she needed to, um, making sure that we're singing the right repertoire, the right roles, that um, we're understanding the nature of the business already in, in grad school so that when we left her studio, we'd have a better understanding of what it's like out there in the real world. Did she sing a snatch or two of things here and there once in a while? She loved to sing. Yeah, she did. She loved to do the warm-ups. <laughs> <laughs> she was always intrigued by by warm-ups that we we had learned um before seeing her so she would love to sing with us the warm-ups but um she played a lot of her recordings which i thought was valuable and amazing um and like you said she was a very versatile performer and something that i loved about her that i very much try to do myself is that she had this ability to capture the audience before she opened her mouth 
It's just you could not take your eyes off of her. The moment she walked on stage, you're like just holding your breath waiting because she had that acting ability, the singing ability, the technique, a way to connect with the audience and with her colleagues on stage. She was just the kind of performer that I've always imagined and dreamed that I'd like to be. What is some of the physical energy required to make the audience sit up and take notice even before you open your mouth? Because you've clearly studied it. (laughs) Well, I just believe that before, like by the time you get, you leave your dressing room, you're in character. And I try to very much put myself in that place as I'm not Janai anymore. I'm Pamina, I'm Susanna, I'm Clara, you know, so I'm already in that mindset so that when I go on stage, I'm in, people know that I'm, I'm somebody else. And, and that's something that she taught us to do. And it's mostly just your, your research and your study, um, how much you, you go the extra mile to learn your roles. And I appreciate that. You've talked already about several singers whom you admire. Mm -hmm. What is it about someone's voice or a voice in particular? And pick any singer or two or three that are things that catch your ear and say, not necessarily, I want to sing like that, Mm -hmm. but that's something I like about singing. What are some Mm -hmm. of those traits? Uh, Well, gosh, I'll talk about a singer who's still here. Um, I remember Suzanne Menser gave a master class when I was very young at Chicago Opera Theater. And she would sing and demonstrate sometimes. And I saw her in recital. And she had this, like, endless breath capacity. It never looked like she took a breath except once. And then she just sings for hours. (laughs) Like, where is she breathing? (laughs) Where's that iron lung behind her? She has an oxygen tank hidden in her costume. Amazing. It was just truly amazing. And you would just see this expansion. But listening to recordings or watching her, you never heard her gasping for air like that. It was very silent. And something, even still I'm working on as a, a young professional myself, is learning how to just keep working with the breath. Um... Something else that I love is purity, um, uniqueness. Like I, I know Renee Fleming or Leontine Price. If I hear them on the radio, I immediately know it's them. Mm. Um, two bars. It's yeah, really, that's two, all it yeah. takes. Sometimes even less than that. You just mm-hmm. you automatically know um, someone's voice, and I, I really admire that. Um, Domingo, Pavarotti can't go wrong. Uh, the legato, the crispness of the of the language, um, especially Italian. You know, listening to that, um, I love French music, um, and so I listen to how the vowels move uh, and before the consonants and all that. It it sounds so nerdy, but it's stuff that you just. That's something I love about opera as an opera singer is that you're you're constantly learning. It's 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 a never ending cycle in that way. It's always something you can pick up and. So yeah, my ear was really attuned to that, or it piqued my interest when I was studying, like how do they do that, and, or what makes them stand out from someone else singing the same repertoire. And it usually came to phrasing, uh, the language, uh, interpretation, um, the legato, and, and the uniqueness of their voice. Let's talk about legato for a moment. It's a, it's a term that uh, can be misunderstood but it is essentially it is that sense of uh, the sense of sound that is, for lack of a better way of putting it, it's a smoothness from yeah. eliding from one pitch to the next, exactly. while never losing the the consonants and vowels that you are singing, right. but to create a sense of uh, the the vocal image of a 
a, a flow of water that keeps exactly. going. Yeah. How does one create legato? <laughs> it's all with the breath, to be honest. Um, it's just learning how to to breathe. A lot of us don't realize that sometimes there's a lot. You, you breathe midway and you think like right under your bust. And then you realize you have so much more <laughs> to go. And uh, you're like, oh, and then when you once you get it, then it really makes sense. You feel like this expansion. And then you're able to keep that air spinning for as long as the phrase, you know, tells you to, so that the line doesn't get botched or chopped up, even when you're adding the consonants in there. It's just like this endless flowing, spinning air. So when you start working on a new piece of music, whether it's a song or a role, mm -hmm. um, what are some of the, what are the ways you pick it apart to then eventually put it back together? Oh gosh. Well, when I have time. <laughs> Always a precious commodity <laughs> for a, precious a working mother. We'll get to that. God, yeah. <laughs> when I have time in my early days, I would, um, well, I remember getting the role of Tatiana in Eugene Onegin. I'd never sung Russian in my life, never even said a word in Russian. And Martin Katz <laughs> was this giant scorer in front of me. He's like, this is your homework for the summer. And I'm like, oh my God. So I was in grad school um, getting ready to, to learn Tatiana. And the first thing I did was I, I look at what are the major difficult parts in the role, whether it's an ensemble bit, whether it's an aria, something that requires a lot more stamina or endurance. I try to find those first, and I try to get the hard things over with first. Huh. I learn those first. Interesting. Because usually that takes up a big chunk of, of, the, of the role or the opera, and then once you get that learned in, in, in your system, everything else is a little easier, and then you feel a lot less pressure. So um, I did that, and of course, as Tatiana, her letter scene is like almost a half hour, that whole scene, and it's just you on stage. It's quite intimidating. So I learned, I worked my tail off on that over the summer, I try, if I can, to get a native speaker hmm. to speak through the text with me so that I can understand the nuances of the language. Um, I'm an American trying to sing Italian or Russian or whatever, but I try to make it as authentic as the language is supposed to be. So if I can, I work with somebody who's a native speaker or very fluent in the language. I listen to many different recordings for interpretations, tempos, how it's done. Um, and then I translate word for word, not just my part, everybody's part, huh. which I tell a lot of young people now, don't just translate your part because the whole story is what's being said to you, what's happened before you, what's happened after you and in between. So you have to know what's going on. So I translate everybody's part. Um, and then I speak through with rhythms. And once I get that comfortable, then I meet with a coach and go through the notes and then, and then just coach the heck out of it until I'm ready. Let's talk a little bit about Tatiana, one of my yeah. favorite parts, yes. and someone for, to who, for whom you are totally suited. <laughs> she goes on a journey, does she God, not? Yeah, and incredible. Uh, do you do you empathize with her and where she, what she does? I mean, we should briefly say that if you don't know the opera Eugene Onegin, Tatiana is the central female character. Mm -hmm. um, she is a, a an inexperienced young girl yes. at the beginning of the opera. She meets this stranger, Eugene Onegin, and mm -hmm. falls instantly and madly in love with him. She, she writes this incredibly impassioned letter, which takes a half an hour. Yeah. Almost yeah. real time, so right? Amazing. <laughs> and then she's rejected by him. Oh, it's so course. painful. And then what happens after that, a transition takes place. He gets involved in a duel and basically kills 
the the husband to be of one of her best friends. Time passes. He disappears. She grows up. She marries a yes. distinguished older gentleman, yes, much older than she absolutely is. Absolutely in love with her and treats her like gold royalty. Yeah. And then in the end, Onegin returns, confesses to her now that she's a mature woman, that he actually has been madly in love with her all along and couldn't admit it. And then, what does she do? That is what gets me. Is even in that moment, something you know she's been waiting to hear all her life is these words from this guy Onegin saying he loves her and wants to be with her. But in her heart, she does not, she cannot leave um, the prince who's married her because he's such a, a wonderful, loving, devoted husband to her. And and as much as she loves Onegin, she's like, you know what, you had your chance and I wasn't good enough for you. I didn't have the class or the status. I was too young, inexperienced. These are all things he says to her after she writes that very impassioned letter. And she does, she never forgot that. It, it literally broke her heart. So for her to find love in this way, even though it's maybe not the kind of passionate love that she would have had with Onyegin, she respects him too much. And her heart um, just won't let her. You know, she says, I, I can't. I can't leave him. And she rejects him in the end. She rejects in a, him. In a scene that is as passionate in its own way of reserve that ends the opera right. as it was in the letter scene. I find her a wonderful character. And yeah. we've all known situations like Tatiana's situation. Oh, gosh, yeah. Did you Did you know anybody who who went through that in their own lives? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I've you definitely don't... been there. Didn't marry a prince, but <laughs> in terms of like, but my husband is definitely like like the prince treats me like royalty so well and as well he should <laughs> if he's listening to this I'm someday i'm a lucky lucky girl <laughs> uh, so let's go back a little bit uh to the the story of chennai um the first of all your name is a beautiful and unusual name where Thank does it you. come from so it's apparently chinese my dad was watching some film i don't even remember the name of it but it was it was during the time of vietnam and the character uh i think it was pronounced shanai in in chinese and it sh meant the one who loves people mm. because she was kind of like this mother hen for children during the war to keep them safe and and so they they called her shanai like the one who loves people so my dad I don't know if he just couldn't pronounce it right, if he misheard it, but he said Jenai, and and that's kind of how I got my name. And I think it suits me because I, I really try to love everybody. So, In a rehearsal situation, you came to us for the first time at the beginning of the 2019 season to sing Susanna in The Marriage mm -hmm. of Figaro and talk about someone who keeps it all together. I think one of the things that people forget is that um, Mozart really, really loved and respected the women in his operas, particularly in Figaro, Don Giovanni, and Così, mm -hmm. as well, I mean, Pamina in The Magic Flute is also a, a, a pretty strong lady. Mm -hmm. But um, as, as you're sitting watching The Marriage of Figaro, you think, you know what, the smartest person on stage is Susanna. <laughs> yeah. The rest of them are all dummies <laughs> in one way or another, either subsumed by ego or fractured by their unhappiness or just too plain dumb to be worth anything. And there's Susanna trying to keep it all together. She is, yep. Do you like her character? I love it. I, I wish I had learned her earlier in my years um, 
studying because I, you know, I'm 36 years old now and I'm just now, I just started singing Susanna last year. So, um, you know, but I, I appreciate it now because I think vocally and physically I'm able to do it probably a lot better than I would have younger. But yeah, I absolutely love her. Um, I relate to her. Um, I think she's just very much observant and aware of her surroundings and, and people. So that's why she's able to kind of help um, all the other characters on stage in, in these tricky situations, um, how to navigate or steer it into a different direction than what a, they may want to go. So, yeah, she's very much aware, very alert. But Mozart isn't really kind to you in that he makes no. you wait until nearly three and a half hours <laughs> into the evening to give you your show-stopping aria. You yes. have been running around the stage like a mad thing, Lord. and then all of a sudden you have to create this four minutes and 30 seconds of total bliss and stillness. Mm -hmm. So how do you pace yourself as a performer to make sure that you've got enough gas left to <sighs> yeah. send the audience into raptures as you did here in Cincinnati? Oh, well for, thank you very much. You're very <laughs> um, I think for me, it's just learning not to oversing, especially in the russets. Um, you know, we get in tech week, you get to get on stage and kind of feel it out, and and you get a lot a lot of feedback from who's in the audience. Whether you can, I remember asking you even, am I pushing too much or can you hear me? Um, so that helps in in creating like how much I can pace. But I do know. Sometimes it's hard because we get so many amazing ensemble bits in that piece, and it's hard not to really give full throttle. But I just have to constantly, in my head, say, relax, because you still have, you know, to get to the fourth act, and it's just as much. <laughs> um, but I love it because it's, as you say, all that running around and, and chatter, and then she gets that moment to just whew, exhale. It's one of my favorite parts. Uh, moments in the whole opera so by that point I'm ready to <laughs> take it easy but well, not only take it easy but also I think it's one of those great moments in opera where the audience is actually a participant mm -hmm. in the in the dramatic moment they're not yeah. they're not passive because they know everything right. they know that you're on stage there in the middle of this crazy scene where supposedly you're going to have an asset of course one person thinks you're having an assignation with one person, mm -hmm. another person thinks something else, and you know all along exactly what it's about. Exactly. And even though you're singing this aria um, supposedly to your new lover, you're actually singing it to your husband. Yeah, she is. And uh, and he doesn't know he it. Doesn't he thinks know you are that. singing it to another lover. And for me, it's part of the genius of Mozart exactly. to say... You know, I you know, there's this the wonderful opera Cosi Fan Tutte. You know, I was women just are like that. It. Yeah. It's men are it's like men that. Are like Sorry, that. <laughs> I, was I'm, just I apologize that. for my sex entirely. <laughs> like, no, we're very clear. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have yeah. a couple of recollections from what effectively might have been your very first professional opera engagement? What was it like? Oh gosh, it was um, as a young artist singing at LA Opera. Um, in 2010, uh, my very first role was Barbarina. In, in The Marriage of Figaro. In The Marriage of Figaro, with none other than Placido Domingo conducting. You know, mm. no pressure, it's fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Young singer. The boss is on the box. Yeah, my icon <laughs> is in the pit, and I'm singing on this amazing stage in this amazing house. It was so intimidating and so exciting at the same time. Um, but I was so well supported by the everybody who worked there, from the maestro Domingo himself. Um, my colleagues on stage were so supportive. So it was a great, memorable 
experience for me getting on that stage. I was so nervous, though. So, so nervous. Um, Why were you nervous? It's not a long roll. Oh, it is a little exposed. You're sort of all by yourself at the beginning yeah, of the fourth act. it is. Looking for that silly pin. <laughs> Look, that darn pin. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's exactly that. It's It wasn't like anybody was on stage with me. Mm. And it was my first, like, solo, only solo that she has. So it was super intimidating and nerve-wracking. But also at the same time, I'm just one of those singers who tends to get nervous because I care so much about what I put out there. Um, but I find or I have found that the nerves help me. How? It keeps me focused. It keeps me on my toes, which I think is great for live theater, what makes it fun. Um, and I'm just aware, constantly aware of what's going to happen. Improvisation sometimes has to happen. And it, if just, a door doesn't open, yep, or a costume piece gets stuck, or yep. a colleague is late to the stage, things happen. Vamp till ready. Yep. Yeah, and <laughs> it, and that happened even in Figaro. <laughs> things. Too happen. many doors. It's a show about doors. So many doors. Sometimes <laughs> they don't open. <laughs> yeah. Um, and of course, in our performances of the Marriage of Figaro, we also had a young artist making her debut with us, at least in yeah. a principal role, Victoria Okafor. She's fabulous. What a so did you voice. did you two have a chance to talk a little bit? We did. And that you, that you, this was your debut as well. Yeah, yeah, we did. She's a wonderful person and a beautiful singer. I'm excited for her journey and to see where she goes. I know she will go very far, but she's had the most amazing experience here at Cincinnati Opera, and we talked a lot about that and and how special this place is. Young artist programs, you had you went through one yourself, mm -hmm. and I know a lot of young singers will listen to this podcast um, knowing that you have gone that path. What are some of the advantages of a young artist program, wherever it is, whether it's a big company or a slightly smaller company? I think what's great about young artist programs is right after you leave school, you know, colleges and universities, they treat you already as young professionals. So you're getting a taste of what the business is like out of a school setting. You know, you still have to apply the whole, you know, being on time, knowing your music, being prepared, um, and, and doing your research and all that. But you start learning how to carry yourself. You start learning more about who you are as an artist or that kind of artist you want to be. Um, what your boundaries are, um, how far you can go, um, how to keep relating with your colleagues on stage. Some will have a lot more experience than you, and you've got to be able to adjust um, and learn from from them as well. Um, and they put you on stage most of most of the time, which is amazing. It's amazing to be, like I said, mine was Barbarina, but just to get that experience already on stage, it starts helping prepare you for once you leave there and you're getting hired wherever in the world. So it uh, you get nonstop coachings and it's free. Definitely take advantage of that <laughs> as much as you can. Use the resources because they're free there. It's not once you leave. So it's um it was just an amazing learning experience so that you feel like you are a young professional when you when you leave your residency and then you get out there in the real world real world and you get an agent or manager and and things pick up from there. Were you able to make that transition fairly smoothly once the Young Artist Program was finished? What was it, two years? It was two years for me, 2010 to 12. And my journey is interesting. I finished and I had already had an agent who is now my agent now um, 
interested in me. And what she did for me, which I thought was amazing, is before signing me completely, she acted as a mentor. So she said, I'm happy to guide you um, for, for a while once you complete your residency and, and help you navigate contracts as they come. And we can just keep keep in touch. And she was very good with that. And I kept in touch with her. And um, I told her I was going to do these two major competitions, um, one being Operalia. And that year in 2012 was in Beijing. And this is the this is the competition started by Placido Domingo. Yes, mm-hmm. and each year it's in a different country. So that year it was in Beijing, and I had to apply and audition just like everybody else, um, which I thought was great. And then I also did that same year the Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions as well. So I did two major competitions, um, and told my manager to be about it, and you know we we talked a lot, and so. I didn't know what I was doing, to be honest. I was just thinking about, this is going to sound so bad, paying rent. Sure. Because usually when you make it to the next round, you get some That's kind of... It's prize money. It's prize money. There's nothing wrong so with that. I was, it took the pressure off of me when I was just thinking, if I can just make it to this next round, then I'll There'll be There'll be a cash prize. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. So I wound up winning both of those competitions. And more than winning... What those competitions did was it put not just me, but everybody who competed, whether you won or not, your name was on the radar because so many people from all over the world and major houses and companies come. And it's like a, a giant audition more than a competition because they're they're trying to see the new talent that's coming in from all over. So it everybody, everybody on stage with me is singing all over the place, whether they won or not. And that's the magic of those kind of competitions at that level. Um, and I had found out in Beijing three hours before walking out on stage for the finals that I was pregnant. Oh, my. Yeah. What if both anxiety-inducing and joyful <laughs> thing to learn it's just before that? Why are you singing for just one person now? It was not. <laughs> You're singing for two. It was, yeah, it was amazing. And because of that competition, I wound up making my Met debut a couple months later, and I was seven months pregnant singing Liu in wow. Turandot as, as my debut. How did that feel, making your debut with baby number one on the Ooh. way and visible or not? Oh, very, very visible. You were very visible. pregnant, Liu. So Liu, <laughs> Liu and Kalaf may have had a history, eh? <laughs> there were those jokes. There were some fun jokes among the cast with that. But, you know, the costume department were so amazing and, mm-hmm. and so flexible that they – they were able to adjust my costume. I felt like I had this gorgeous purple muumu. So some you couldn't tell no. um, on stage, and and they it's because of their genius there. They did such an amazing job, and I felt comfortable and beautiful, and and it was great. But when I would you know Liu kills herself, and when I would lay down, that's when my son would start actively kicking. So if you were close, like my co- my stomach is literally bouncing. just bouncing up and down. They're trying not to laugh because it's a sad moment. It is a sad moment. So, but yeah, I was had to remember I was supposed to be dead because I would start laughing because they're laughing. It was a mess. But. And your son to be is laughing too. I'm sure. Son was having a great time in there. Um, you know, I've talked to many many female singers over the years, and every one of them has a slightly different answer to this, but. Mm. Um, Is it easier to support your breath when you're pregnant? A lot of people say so. You know, it took me a while uh, because, like I said, my I maybe I just the way I carried my son was really low. Um, But I I had a hard time getting over the belly at a certain point. So I did work with a very well known 
um, a technician, Deborah Birnbaum. She lives in New York. And I remember meeting with her a couple weeks before my debut at the Met. And she had me sit on that giant exercise ball and trying to breathe through a straw and, and leaning against a wall and laying on my back. Like things that you learn when you're starting voice lessons, but you just had to relearn so that I could breathe still over the belly. And, and the other thing also that, I mean, I had a long conversation once with Renee Fleming about this, who sang the opening night of The Met mm -hmm. uh, in a famous set of performances of Verdi's Otello with Domingo, only six weeks after her second child was born. So what was it like after your son was born? How ah. soon after was it easy to sing again? What difference did you notice, if any, in, your, in your son? I did. For me, I had uh, an emergency C-section, so it's a lot longer healing process, usually about six weeks at least to heal. Um, so I had to take about three months off to really recover and recuperate. Um, I'm a control nut, so it was very... No. <laughs> I know, right? What? <laughs> me? It was difficult for me not to control everything that was coming out of my mouth. But at the same time, it was a, re a relief. It was a lot more freedom, a lot more flexibility. My voice did get a little warmer than usual because I was starting to get asked to sing roles that were a lot bigger than what my voice actually was. But just because of the warmth or the color of it, happened after my pregnancy. Um, breath support, yeah. You, you, you really learn where your breath is supposed to be. Being pregnant and having a baby, definitely learn. Um, well, it's wonderful. It's wonderful, I'm sure, for young singers to hear this because oh, yeah. um, it's also a challenge. And mm -hmm. without getting too personal, but mm -hmm. um, balancing being a mom and being a professional opera singer, I'm sure I wish uh, and I hope maybe one of our great singers, maybe that one's going to be you, will write a book for mm. other female colleagues about what it's like to be a mom and an opera singer. The one thing I will say is it can be done. and You're living proof of it. Living proof and many before me. I'd, um, it's something that I, I like to tell young people, don't feel that a family will stop your career. It can happen. Um, but I also think it... You have to have a good support system, um, whether that's family that can help travel with you. I was very fortunate to have my mom or my mother-in-law travel with me when my son was very little. Um, and he came with me everywhere, hmm. uh, which was so great. <laughs> he, was, he was almost born in a trunk, as yeah, they used exactly, to say. Exactly. He came with me everywhere. Um, very good on planes. Not always the case, but, you know, he just, as a little kid, it was easier to have him with me. And I would always have someone that I knew traveling with me. But it is it is a challenge, it's different for everybody, but you have to find the balance that works for you and your family, because for everybody it's going to be different. Um, so for me, I, I have a great balance um, with how much I travel, how far or how long I'm away, um, how much new repertoire I learn in a year and a season, and that's because I have an amazing manager who supports um, who supports me and family life for her artists and, and is very protective of us in that way, and that's that helps. Um, I have a great family, a great husband, and and so, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky in that regard. It's a wonderful thing to hear because I have um, 
I had several years ago the chance to meet a rather remarkable Irish lady by the name of Veronica Dunn, mm. who um, has a wonderful, I think it is the only international singing competition in Ireland named after her. And her story was that uh, she was a rising young star uh, in the English opera scene in the 1950s, very close to Joan Sutherland. They were sort of apprentices together. Mm. And she took the really difficult decision of stopping singing when she married to have children because that was just not done in those days. Right. And uh, I don't think she's rueful. Maybe she is, but she doesn't give the sense of it. But you you do sense that uh, she was obliged because of her time to make a choice. And it's wonderful to hear that you don't have to. And, and Renee Fleming, as we've talked about already, is a wonderful example of someone right. she talks who's about raised that two in her book. brilliant mm-hmm. young ladies Absolutely. Um, and maintained a very active singing career. Yeah. You also have been in Cincinnati on this occasion to sing Clara in Porgy and Bess. Yeah. And I recall we had a wonderful um, opera rap with many of your colleague mm-hmm. singers from it. And uh, you said something rather rather fun and unusual that um, we went through the whole dilemma of African-American singers have to be careful about singing Porgy and Bess so they don't get pigeonholed and don't get cast in other core repertoire. And you had a fun story about your relationship to Porgy and Bess and Clara. Would you share that again? Oh, gosh, if I can't remember which one Well, that nobody had asked you to sing it. And you thought, wait a minute, um, does not does no one want me to sing Clara? Yeah, you know, it was funny because social media is, uh, you know, gosh. It, everybody, a lot of my colleagues were always posting on Facebook or Instagram their group photos or rehearsal photos with so many people that I know. And they're always laughing and smiling. And I'm like, gosh, you know, nobody has been ringing my phone or Deborah, my manager's phone, for me to sing Claria. And I was kind of feeling left out in a way. Like, what's going on? <laughs> um, I hadn't been advised not to sing it. Um, I had known of the of the of the warning, of course. The porgy curse. The porgy curse, yeah. uh, supposedly from talking to other colleagues of mine. But you know, I, I wasn't told not to sing it. It just wasn't on my radar. Um, and then it it wasn't until just a year ago that um, I got a phone call from my manager saying that my alma mater, University of Michigan, was doing the concert version, just the concert version in its entirety. A new critical Uh, edition of the piece. Part of Uh, the large project of the University of Michigan to make a critical edition of all of Gershwin's works, his musicals, his classical pieces, and of course, Porgy and Bess, his great opera. And so that's my first experience with it. I'd sung Summertime a hundred times, but never been actually in the production. So... The first day of rehearsal, it was like a family reunion, even though I didn't know anybody except for Morris Robinson. But that's the kind of dynamic that Porgy and Bess brings, is that everybody just, you just feel like you're going to a big family barbecue. And it's so warm and so freeing, and and you're seeing a whole room full of people who look like you? Who look like you? And you just don't really get that anywhere else. So it was it was a very impactful experience for me from day one. And now that I've sung it in Amsterdam and doing it here, uh, it's still the same thing, mm-hmm. different cast, but the same kind of familial environment um, from day one. And it really just it's like family. One of the things that we've learned about Porgy and Bess as we begin to. uh, delve into it as a production is that 
Catfish Row has some iconic characters. There are roles that not only are they are they personages in, Cat, in Catfish Row, but they have a they have a job, mm-hmm. as it were. And if you think of Serena as the spiritual leader of yeah. the community, uh, Mariah as the sort of the moral leader of the community and the the one who shall not be messed with. <laughs> exactly. And you have Jake, who is the entrepreneur. He's right. the provider of employment right. for the community and a, and a good man. And you are Jake's wife, yeah. and you two have a baby. What do you think is, if you take a step back, what's Clara's place in the community of Catfish Row? That's a great question. I, I look at Clara and Jake just as this young, um, upcoming family that kind of other people in the community are looking up to in a way, especially for the younger ones coming up. You know, like you said, Jake's an entrepreneur. He takes very good care of his family. He works hard. And Clara is, she's not as outspoken, say, as Serena or Mariah, but she's a very religious woman, mm-hmm. um, also learning from Serena in a way and um, learning her place in the community. She's a new mom, um, and she you see her dealing with the difficulties of, you know, crying baby, and it's hot, and you know, just like any new mother would be experiencing. Um, she's devoted to her husband. She's devoted to to her community. Um, and I just find her to be kind of like this new wave of fresh air in the community, just like the what future. everybody's, yeah, what the future could be like, you know, like I can be an entrepreneur. I can be a mom. I can, we can, we can create this kind of family lifestyle, even given our surroundings, you know, it's not the most... It's not a conducive atmosphere yeah, in which to raise a child. Exactly. There's, there's always the danger. Uh, there's always the privation. Mm-hmm. There's sport and life and, yeah. the, and the danger of succumbing to a life fueled by drugs and alcohol. Exactly. Uh, there's crime. Um, and there is also the feeling that you are an oppressed minority still. Because, of course, one of the things that Maestro Abel pointed out in, in, a, in another session that we had is that, you know, all the African-American characters sing. The few white people in the show don't. Mm-hmm. And when they come on stage, the atmosphere changes completely. Oh, yeah. And it becomes actually quite dangerous. Yeah. And you see a complete reversal. The, the community almost freezes mm-hmm. when those officials from the outside white world come in. Absolutely. For me, it's part of the genius of, the, of, of Gershwin's and Hayward's creation is that they have created this beautiful, tight-knit community of people. It goes back to DuBose Hayward's book, of course, but still, the Gershwins animated in a way that is all that much more poignant for Clara because, of course, in her desire to uh, keep her family together and to hopefully save her husband, she loses her life as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. But you also have the hit tune of all (laughs) hit tunes. If no one knows anything about Porgy and Bess... They do know summertime. They to date, do. when I was doing a little research for another talk, I found out that, and I'm sure it succeeded this number now, summertime has been recorded 27,000 times. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do you bring something fresh to it? Because I remember I was at the very first musical rehearsal, and, of course, everyone is. I, I, that first musical rehearsal is sort of like a combination of the schoolroom and the barnyard. Exactly. You know, because you're there. Everyone's there with yep. their scores. They want to make sure that they do well. But everybody is checking everyone else oh, out. Oh, yes. What's it going to be? Oh, yes. And you opened your mouth, and within four <laughs> bars of summertime, the room started to applaud. You had not gotten past eight bars, and you had people giving you hand, hand signals and yeses. 
That's a great group. So, yeah. <laughs> so when you take an iconic piece, mm-hmm. summertime, of course, is the extreme example. But even something like Devienne non Tardar, mm-hmm. when you take a piece that's thrice familiar, how do you try and find something for yourself? What are some of the things you look for? You know, I, uh, with that, it's just I have to find my own subtext and own interpretation of it, and and try to just sing it in my voice um, mm. because it's easy to listen to other recordings or, or interpretations of it and try to emulate that and copy it. But that's not you. That's someone else's. So for me, it's just bringing to it my own emotional subtext to it. Like I said, you know, studying the role, what's Clara feeling in this moment? Or what's Susanna feeling in that moment? Um, or Pamina, whatever. Um, I really try to dive really deep into the text and what's happened before that to to conjure up the the emotion that I want to bring, and summertime it's a hot hot summer day, in and on the in Catfish Row, and the baby has been nonstop crying. Jake's not there, of course. You know, constantly out on that boat. She's tired. She's hot. She's probably cranky. hungry. She's cranky. Hasn't slept, but she finds a moment of solace to hope for the future for her child. Yeah. You know, like. I want you to be have a better life than I have, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that you're given that opportunity. And so it's like a, a, a stillness to it, and not only a lullaby, but hope. And you get that from the very beginning, which is also what makes the ending so, so cool. hard. So Clara is a relatively new role for you. Are there other roles that are on the horizon or things that you're putting on your little wish list that you want to do in the next couple of years? Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, I would love to try, in a small house, of course, to start with. I I love singing newer repertoire in smaller houses. Uh, Mimi. Mm -hmm. I've been asked to look at Contessa. Perfect for you. uh, Thank you. I would love to sing that. Um, Still would like to do more Susanas, though, because I just started her. But Contessa... Um, I love Micaela. I love singing Liu. It's one of my favorite roles in the world to sing. So as long as I can sing her, I would love to keep singing her. Marilla Fanny sang Liu into her 50s. My gosh. You have nothing to worry about. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I still have those high notes. Um, I would like to do more um, French repertoire. Don't get to do that as often except for in art songs. I think Mm -hmm. the the only one I've sung is really Micaela and Carmen. But um, I love French music. So Manon. Um, not Chanarantala, uh, Cendrillon. Cendrillon, of course. Um, looking into those. Um, and so that's it for now. And new works. I, I really, and I tell you young people that are listening, definitely look at new music and, and don't shy away from taking those on because it's, it's a big thing now and there's so many amazing composers that are around right now that are creating some of the most gorgeous music um, out there. So I have some new works that have been offered to me. Well, um, we're grateful here at Cincinnati Opera because you're going to be joining an all-star cast for a world premiere next summer. I'm excited. In Castor and <laughs> so you have, uh, as a as a, a working mom, as it were, mm-hmm. there's still performance day. Uh, and so do you have any particular ritual? Uh, is your son <laughs> in the care of someone else on a performance day? How do you prepare to sing in the you evening know, or even in the afternoon? I'm... I'm I don't know if I'm weird, if that's the word. I try to just keep things as normal as possible for me. I I treat it like any other day. Um, I spend time with my son in the morning, uh, depending on how 
difficult the role is or how long, you know, it depends on how much activity I do in the day, let's say. But I, I like to either work out or take him out and do something just to get my mind off of the mm-hmm. jitters because, you know, you get anxious. Like you said, you're a nervous, not yeah, a nervous I, performance, but you're a performer who has the, the right kind of nervousness. Right. And you, you want know, to challenge Exactly. Channel it. So I like right. to, you know, let go, relax. And then once I leave home, it's when I start to start meditating and breathing deep. I get to the dressing room an hour and a half before my makeup call just to stretch, meditate, um, just have silence. Because once you get your makeup done, it gets kind of busy, you know, in your dressing room. So And the electricity know. level backstage starts to rise, Ooh, yeah. whether you're in a, in a room by yourself or you're, <laughs> yes. you know, chatting with colleagues before you go on stage. There is oh, a, yeah. there's an, an energy. intensity. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. an intensity and... Uh, yeah, you feel that, especially on opening night. So I usually just, but yeah, no, I, I kind of just go about my day like I would any other day. Just Do you have anything mindful. special you do to maintain overall vocal health? I just try to be aware of my environments. You uh, know, I, I love to talk, but, uh, <laughs> and I don't talk, or I, sh- I don't talk supported at all. <laughs> Um, you talk so in your normal everyday street voice. I do, it, yeah. so I have to be careful. Yeah, you don't talk like a soprano. <laughs> I don't. Or I, I, and the ones I love talking to are tenors. Because they're always talking like no, this. They always sound like the refugee from a Dudley Do-Right <laughs> episode yeah. on television. Gosh, you should hear me on the phone. I always sound so low sometimes. Like a, <laughs> like a man, I feel. My <laughs> voice is so low, but I sing higher. Um, no, I just try to be mindful of my environments. I don't. If I go out to restaurants, I try to be in a quiet space part of the restaurant where I'm not having to scream. If it's too loud, I just walk out and mm-hmm. go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, watching what I eat and drink, you know, before, especially on, perf- on performance days, um, how much I eat. But, I, you know, I, I can't eat that much before I sing. It has to be like three hours before, and then I'll have like little fruit and stuff in my dressing room. For, for energy. For energy, yeah. The yeah. right kind of energy. Exactly. Well, and speaking of which, I think what we'll... Uh, We'll progress to, at this point in our conversation, what I do every time, which is ask every guest the same questions. Okay. So, and you can take the fifth, by the way. Okay. And then <laughs> um, what do you have for breakfast? Mm. Right now, it's been granola with fresh fruit and kefir. Mm-hmm. And I mix that together. Very healthy. Just just recently. <laughs> just recently. <laughs> no omelets? You haven't tried getta here yet, have Not you? Not <laughs> yet. You know, usually I'll have eggs and bacon or something, but I've been really into the granola kick lately. Good for you. I think you've talked a little bit about it already, but how do you deal with stress? Ah, well, meditate. I, I pray. I try to listen to music that just keeps me motivated or in the right mindset. Um, I dance a lot. Oh. And I will dance in my room before I go on stage. Ballerina dancing? or Nope. <laughs> Crazy dancing. <laughs> I love to dance. And I just feel like it's my energy going and lets go of the nerves and just puts me in a energetic, fun, like ready to go out there and, and do it. So, You've spoken of Miss Verrett, who is a teacher and a mentor. Are there... Is there one or two? Are there one or two people who, who've passed through your life who have been particularly important mentors? Uh, besides Shirley Verrett, um, gosh, yes. I mean, she'll do. <laughs> she, she's definitely she takes the cake for me. Um, I, I had a great teacher in um, my undergrad. I've had amazing voice teachers. I have been very blessed with that. My high school teacher um, and my 
undergrad teacher, they still come to my performances oh, and they're nice. very much in touch with me. And um, they just both, you know, just offer so much. Boo you up. Yeah. Well, yeah. What are you reading these days? Ah, so I just, I actually haven't. Of course, I'm going to blank on it. Um, it's in my purse right there. But I just finished the um, Me Before You mm-hmm. books, <clears throat> and I loved it. I loved it. I kind of like those nonfiction romance novels. Um, I recently got into Outlander. Oh, wow. So, and But I, I saw the show before I read the books, right. and now I'm going to go... Start reading those books. Speaking of that, are there TV series or podcasts that you enjoy? <laughs> yeah, so recently Outlander. I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. Um, are you disappointed that it's over? I am. <laughs> it's, it was really hard <laughs> to let, let go of my Sunday evenings like that. Yeah. Um, I also like The Walking Dead, um, Breaking Bad. And I tend to watch a lot of anything to do with forensics or CSI. I'm very intrigued. Always have been since... A young age. What phone apps do you find most useful? Mm, most useful. Well, something you use maybe more than other, even if, whether it's useful or not. I mean, it becomes a habit. Lately, it's been Instacart. <laughs> <laughs> it's great easy, having your groceries easy, I was delivered. Say, easy way to shop. <laughs> easy way to shop. Right. You've been in Cincinnati not only for Porgy and Best, but you started the summer with us, so you've been here a good long time. Mm-hmm. Have you found a restaurant or two that you like in particular? Have you gone out much? Yes, the Eagle. Oh, the oh, fried boy. chicken is to die for. Oof. That's for sure. It's a really good soul food place. <laughs> and also the, um, uh, gosh, what is it? Savano's or Sarano's, something like that. It's like a Italian place not far from the Eagle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great atmosphere for, you know, drinks and... Salazar. No? Yes, Salazar. Salazar. Thank yeah. you. Yes. Drinks and appetizers. We like Right on the there. corner there. It's a nice right atmosphere. You're right. Yeah. Um, You've talked a little bit about it, but is there a particular piece of career advice you've gotten either from a manager, a mentor, a teacher that you'd share with other young singers? Yes, it was from Miss Verrett. And she always told us to hurry slowly. Oh, festina lente. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a journey and everybody's paths are different and moving at the pace that it should be for you. And it's easy to get deterred when your colleagues are either moving a couple steps ahead and you're stuck in somewhere in the middle. It can be discouraging and it'll make you feel like you're not good enough or you should give up. And I want to tell you the hurry slowly thing has really helped me because you have to just stay true to what your path and journey is. Opera is not going anywhere. It's a non-stop learning process, even when you think you've made it, you're constantly learning. So enjoy the process and don't be in such a hurry to get to the end. Mm. Enjoy it. Because the end will come eventually. Exactly. Is there a favorite musician of yours outside of the world of classical music? Mm. Yes, it always surprises people what I play in my car. <laughs> it's not classical music. I love hip-hop. I love rap music. I love alternative music. So I listen to all sorts of artists. I love Beyonce. Um, You're not the first person to say right? that this week. <laughs> Gotta love Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> One of your yeah. esteemed colleagues said that just Did in the she? last podcast, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I do. I'm a huge Beyonce fan. Um, I like Drake. Um, gosh, who else? I love Radiohead. That's a throwback. Definitely throwback, but yeah. I just think Tom York is a genius. Yeah. Um, phenomenal. 
uh, artist and um, and Muse. My son is really into Muse, and so now because of him, it's become a part of my daily uh, listening <laughs> routine well, as well. Whenever I'm be with thankful, him. it's not you know the Teletubbies or something. <laughs> exactly. Something in Muse is an amazing, amazing band, and we just got to see them perform live uh, just before coming here in Chicago. So it was great. So, um, what's your elevator speech to convince someone to try opera for the first time? Ooh, to come see it. Definitely pick one that, um, you know, you can read about them anywhere on Google or, or get a libretto. And if the storyline piques your interest, then I think you usually would enjoy sitting there and listening to it. Um, it's something, you know, opera just has a way of drawing people in. It's live theater, so you never know what's going to happen. There's excitement with that. The excitement just walking into a hall of an opera house, you know, the the lobby, it's usually beautiful, um, something grandiose about it, but also um, exciting, enchanting. It's like a magical space. Uh, the orchestra, hearing all these amazing musicians in the pit bringing these the score to life, it's incredible what the overture is like. Before the curtain even goes up, it just sets you up for what's about to happen. Um, and there's some amazing overtures in so many operas. Um, and then usually, you know, the sets, you know, whether they're minimal or not, you know, it just transports you. You're able to use your imagination, even from what you're seeing. Um, if you allow yourself to just sit back and let go and be entertained, it's, it can be a, such an, a magical experience. Thank you, Jedi. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages. <laughs>